Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 2, The Descent. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I am Mitt. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. And uh, before we get into the film, we will go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? Welcome to the corner. So today, we're talking about The Descent, and it's at least in part about a, well, it is about a group of women who are, who do a lot of adrenaline type activities and who are kind of, at least some of them are thrill seekers and that kind of thing. Uh, And so I was curious, what's the most extreme like wilderness or adrenaline type adventure you, any of you have been on, you know, we're talking like rafting, climbing, caving, skydiving or whatever, or something. If you, if there's something that you really want to do, that's something like that, that's on your bucket list or something. Well, I don't have a bucket list like that because um, the descent specifically is part of a horror movie genre that I like to lovingly call why I don't go outside ever. And <laughs> I'm really kind of an indoors gal. I like movies, books, etc. tea, cats. It's great. Um, however, before I discovered how easy it was to die as a corporeal being, um, there was a... Uh, There's a lot of mountains where I live in Pennsylvania, and there's this one particular peak that, you know, you have this amazing view. It's about a 45-minute hike from the trail, great fine. So um, I went up there, and it was a wonderful view, and I sweated my butt off. And what I didn't realize is that there were little caves um, all all along, like, the rock face. So my crazy self crawled into one of these caves, and I got pretty far down. And I didn't stop going until I, like, couldn't see the light anymore behind me. And there was, I like went through some water and there were all sorts of crazy gigantic spiders that I wasn't really excited about, but I basically went till I couldn't go anymore and there was too sheer of a drop and then I kind of like army crawled my way backwards. That's about as adventurous as I get and I will never do something like that again. (laughs) Let's see. Um, For me, I, I don't know, a lot of the stuff I could think of, I kind of ended up doing in Boy Scouts. Um, so like we did some white ra- white water rafting and, um, you know, some rock climbing and things like that. Nothing specifically super extreme, but that's, but I did a lot of kind of fun stuff like that. Did some canoeing and got hypothermia once. So that was fun. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I guess my stuff. I don't, not a really specific story though. Uh, yeah, kind of the same for me. I remember one of the cooler outdoor experiences that I did in the Boy Scouts was we did like a canoe trip, like a 50 mile canoe trip, uh, down the Delaware river, which if you're not familiar, that's basically forms the, the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And that was pretty fun. Uh, it was very difficult for me cause I've never really been in good shape my whole life. I've either been like thin and in bad shape or fat and in bad shape so (laughs) so it was like uh so it was it was definitely difficult but it was fun um and now like like 
Brianna said, uh, knowing my own mortality, I would never want to do any kind of like cave diving or just going into caves, exploring. I would never do anything like that. I'm like, have real bad claustrophobia watching this movie always like gives me more anxiety just seeing them crawling through the tunnels than like any of the actual <laughs> horror elements. <laughs> Although, I mean, you could argue the ho- the tunnels are a horror element, but we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Yeah, I've never really done anything extreme either. I think the most extreme thing I've ever done was climb a little mountain with Matt last <laughs> last month. <laughs> we both almost died. It was just, we're just, you know, it was just a really steep hike. Um, but, and I'm not really that interested in doing anything extreme either because I am scared of everything. Mitz, we're going to be really good friends. (laughs) (laughs) I think if I had to pick something outdoorsy and somewhat, uh, like demanding, I would probably just want to go on a really cool long hike, like the Appalachian Trail hike or something like that. That would make me feel really accomplished and I don't have to climb any cave walls for that, so... Yeah, that's my answer. I have never really done a lot of extreme outdoor stuff either, so it sounds like for the most part um, we're all fairly indoorsy, maybe. Not all of us. I mean, this is a horror movie podcast, so... (laughs) Yeah, we're nerds. (laughs) To be expected. (laughs) The only survivalism I'll do is zombie apocalypse style. That's it. (laughs) Of course. Double tap. So I, too, was in scouting growing up, and so I did, you know, lots of camping trips and, you know, canoeing and rowing and stuff like that. But uh, I guess the most adrenaline sort of outdoors thing that I had ever done was just that we had one mare badge where I think it was like wilderness survival and the idea is that you had to survive a night outside without any like bringing pretty much anything on you except for like maybe matches and a knife but i did it at scout camp so it was like the most neutered version of that that you can imagine it was like a scout leader taking 30 guys out into a wood wooded area that wasn't far from the campsites that we'd all established anyway and then saying like okay here we are i'll make sure everyone gets a fire i'll make sure everyone gets food now you have to figure out your own shelter and so me and a couple of friends found like uh, two fallen, not extremely thick, but, you know, you could fit your arms around them, trees that had fallen down into like a V shape. And so we just threw every branch and leaf on top of it that we could and slept under there for the night. It was actually pretty solid compared to a lot of people's shelters, but it was just opportunity, really. So that's, I don't know, about as crazy adventurous as it's gotten for me. I echo what everyone else has said and i'm sure what we'll get into is uh cave diving and the i'm not an extremely claustrophobic person but it definitely brings that out of me just thinking about doing some of these things and thinking to myself yeah i would never find myself in this situation um but i would like to someday maybe try skydiving since it happened to be on your list of things within the question joe (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know the other thing that has recently kind of come across my mind is i had a well, it was my boss who took his family is to some lake in Idaho, but they did like a paragliding thing where they they like hook the pair. It's like a, in the that Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic Park three, where they like hook it to a boat and then like reel you up like you're on, you know, a big giant kite, basically. 
and he said yeah. it was awesome. I actually have been paragliding. I forgot about that. It's oh, yeah. it's also so same. worth it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty nice. cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that sometime. I do. Okay, I have a story. It's not my story. It was a story I was adjacent to, but it's still kind of funny to me. So I'm going to share it. I had these. Uh, I had this group of friends in college, and uh, kind of adjacent to that group. One of my good friends, he'd moved in with these guys and they rented some jet skis. So I kind of got the invite along to hang out with them. So I went one weekend to go jet skiing with them, but they still had it the following day. I couldn't go with them, but they went out and there was three of them. And so the one guy's driving the car and the other two get both of the two jet skis. So the guy drives his car back. And he, you know, puts them onto the the docking area. He lets both the jet skis off. Then he pulls back up and then drives into the parking lot and then walks back down to the lake. And uh, as soon as he gets down to the lake, I mean, whatever that took him, like five, ten minutes, he walks down to the lake and his uh, this random lady's like, oh, your friends had an accident on the jet skis. And he's like, oh, that's not them because I just put them in the water like five, ten minutes ago. But it was. The first thing they did once they got into the water is they, I don't know what they were thinking, but they basically unintentionally ended up playing chicken and they slammed into each other. And the one basically got skipped like a stone across the water, bouncing oh, a few man. times. Oh, my God. Dang. <laughs> So he's this uh, like 18, 19 year old guy. He's got a broken pelvis and he's like walking around for a cane for the rest of the semester until he decided he couldn't take it anymore and ended up having to just call off for the rest of the semester. And it's 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 terrible that it happened. He's OK from everything I know. He was fine. He went by the name Cougar, which was funny to me anyway. But <laughs> when I'd gone with them the day before, both of them were adamant telling us like, We're, you can't mess these things up. You got to be careful. You got to look where you're going. You got to make sure that you don't have anybody in your path when you're driving. We spend a lot of money running these things and it's going to be on us. If you get into an accident, drilling that into our heads, just drilling it into our heads and yet like it all of 10 minutes and they wrecked one of them. And <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's the story that's not mine, but I was adjacent to. So there you go. <laughs> that's funny. Well, thanks for joining us in In the Corner. Before we get into the movie description, I was just going to give a status update on the Is It Horror first annual movie marathon. And we are recording this ahead of time, so we won't have watched these movies just yet. But this is uh, Brianna's Feminist Horror Week is what we're doing. So there's movies like The Craft, High Tension, Jennifer's Body, The Witch, Prevenge, and of course The Descent that we're talking about, and then I'm Thinking of Ending Things. That is the lineup for this week. Um, I don't know if everyone here has seen any of those yet. Obviously you will later, but uh, are is there any that you guys are particularly excited for? I'm excited for all of them, but I am shocked you didn't include Buffy the Vampire Slayer on that. That is gold. That would have been a good one. Yeah. Paul Rubin's finest work. It's true. It is true. Yay. Okay, so today we are doing The Descent. Uh, this is a movie from 2005, one that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, this was written and directed by Neil Marshall. His writer and director credits include things like Dog Soldiers, Doomsday, Hellboy, The Reckoning. Um, and some of his TV directing includes things like Game of Thrones and Westworld, um, also Hannibal and Black Sails. So can't say that I can't that I don't love him. You know what I'm saying? 
the back of the box description for this uh, basically just says, on an annual extreme outdoor adventure, six women meet in a remote part of the Appalachians to explore a cave hidden deep in the woods. Far below the surface of the earth, disaster strikes when a rockfall blocks their exit and there's no way out. The women push on, praying for another exit, but there's something else lurking under the earth. The friends are now prey, forced to unleash their most primal instincts in an all-out war against an unspeakable horror, one that attacks without warning again and again and again. Ooh, ah. And again. And again. Cool. So, uh, of course, spoiler warning going into this. So uh, if you haven't seen the movie, probably a good idea to watch it before you hear us talk about it. But, uh, you know, continue on at your own risk. You've been warned, as I imagine they were basically. But... Uh, so as far as looking at just the intent of the film, I've got a clear-cut quote here from Neil Marshall. It comes from ScreenAnarchy.com. He was asked about his inspiration for the film. And so what he said was, Looking back at Dog Soldiers, I thought it wasn't particularly scary. It came out as a black comedy more than anything else. I still had this fundamental need in me to make a horror film that genuinely terrified people. In the same way that I was genuinely terrified by the likes of Deliverance or Alien or The Shining. All those films from the 70s that I grew up with and have haunted me ever since. There was also a need to make a horror film that took itself seriously, that played it straight. So the story emerged from that desire, really. So that's pretty clear cut, his intent in making the film. Uh, just kind of looking at the reception side of it. So looking at meta tag data from various sites and streaming services and things like that. You had uh, 10 of them described it as horror, three of them described it as thriller, three described adventure, one described as suspense, one described as mystery, and most services used multiple of those tags, and no service omitted horror from their descriptors. The other thing, though, that I did find was somewhat interesting is I've been looking up Google search trends for each of these movies as we've been going over them, and a lot of horror movies you see that they get a bump in searches every October. But oddly enough, The Descent doesn't get the October bump. Um, it seems like it's pretty steady. You have random months throughout the year that get bumps. So for whatever reason, this is not a movie that people search a lot around October. Of course, that doesn't mean it's not horror, but it is interesting that that's how that panned out. So before we get any further, did everyone consider this to be horror? Absolutely. I do think it's horror as well. I think it does have a... It's heavy on the thriller side too, but horror, yes. I say definitely horror. Yes, horror. Same here, definitely horror. Kind of figured that that's where everyone was going to come out at. And the point of doing this as an episode is kind of a little bit similar to what we did last season with Event Horizon being the second episode. This is kind of sort of a, a baseline test. So we're looking at something that we're all sure that we're all sure is horror and kind of analyzing a little bit why and taking those ideas as we look at the rest of the movies for the rest of the season. So uh, before we get into all of that with whether or not why it's horror and all of those things, as this is Feminist Horror Week, we want to talk a little bit about the concept of feminism as it relates to horror movies, and I believe Brianna had some quotes to that effect. I do. Look at me citing sources and stuff. So I did do a little bit of research just because 
I didn't know if there was a particular definition of horror and feminism that I needed to take a look at. So I found something on seventhrow.com that kind of resonated with me. And it says, it's about giving women the same chances that men have to explore varying degrees of themes and emotions outside of the standard tropes that we find ourselves in. And I was like, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I can, you know, see some movies where that applies. Um, and then I also checked out the marysue.com and there was a quote in one of their articles that mentioned what we're actually asking in pertain like in in pertain how it pertains to feminist horror in particular. Does this movie abuse women in a voyeuristic way, or is it using horror to speak to a unique terror that is connected to the female existence? I think that's a better question. Um, so I thought about this stuff, and then I kind of came up with my own definition of what feminist horror is, and I don't know anything, but here's what I think. And that's why you're listening to this podcast. Horror becomes feminist when it examines fear from a specifically female perspective and or features female characters whose um, pertinence to the story isn't defined majoritively by the actions or the existence of another male character. Ta-da! Quotes. I think that I would tend to go with that definition too. I think that's a good definition. I think just generally the way I view it is it's it's not using the women in the horror movie as set dressing. It's giving them actual arcs and giving thought to who they are, the choices that they would make. They're not just there for an exploitive purpose. And uh, I guess the other thing that comes to mind, at least for me with that concept is looking at it through the lens of the Bechdel test, which I guess for those that aren't familiar with that. Oh, the Bechdel test. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, for those that don't know, that's the idea that a movie would pass that test if there is one or more named female character that have a conversation about something other than a man, which seems fairly simple. And if you did like the male version of that test, pretty much every movie you've ever seen passes it, oddly enough, except for this one. But that's kind of the point. But that it's not that easy to find movies that pass it for women. And that doesn't automatically mean a movie is good or bad if it doesn't pass this test, but it's something to kind of keep in mind and a good thing for filmmakers to keep in mind just to make sure that there's equal representation. So at least that's the way I view it. I guess a question that I would pose just for like conversation's sake is that so many horror movies have a female, uh, you know, final girl where she, her, her arc is not necessarily based around being part of a man's story. She is the protagonist a lot of the time, but I don't know that I would consider those movies always feminist horror. So what is the difference, I guess, is a question I would pose. I think because most of those movies usually portray that particular final final girl female character as a victim consistently throughout the film. Yeah. Like, the point of the movie is to watch a female character be terrorized or abused or in danger. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's almost, like, exploitative to the final girl. Yeah. No disrespect to Sidney Prescott, though. Just saying. <laughs> I think that... Did I lose my train of thought? It's very possible that I did. Oh, no, I've got it. I'm back. We're back. Anyway, the train of thought that I had on this was just the idea that it is easy in horror to have very, very thinly drawn characters. And so you can easily find plenty of movies that do have the final girl trope in it that 
I don't think that the final girl trope in and of itself is feminist or not. It still just comes down to the way that it's done, the way that it's executed, because you may have a final girl in a movie and she may be extremely paper thin as far as her characterization goes. And it may not really do anything for her story. She might just be there, but then at the same time, everyone else in the movie might be portrayed that way too. So I think it's as much a case by case basis for whether or not it qualifies as it is for whether something qualifies as horror. I think that it's hard to kind of just say, here's a set of rules. And if it meets these criteria, then it definitely counts or it definitely doesn't count. You can give yourself guidelines, but you're always going to find you know exceptions. I think. Maybe this is along similar lines, but just as we're talking about this, I was wondering why is it a trope that, the final girl you know it's a final girl specifically not like a final person or you know there's not some other title for that everybody knows of the concept of the final girl why does that come about in horror specifically what do you guys think the first thing that comes to mind is that if there was a final guy it would be an action film Hmm. i think that it is the concept of who can be victimized and how in terms of horror, because there's always someone chasing someone else. But I think the final girl is maybe traditionally or over-portrayed as, like I said, kind of a victim. Even when she fights back, it's like, ooh, she didn't break a nail. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, good for you, honey. That kind of thing. Oh, good for you. You stand up for your rights. Like, it's kind of that namby-pamby, like, I don't know. I just, I like me a good kick-ass heroine. Yeah. We, we could all use some more good, strong heroin in our lives. Rawr. Yeah. Now, maybe, maybe like Predator is an example of a horror movie that's not really a horror movie because it is a final guy and it turns into more of an action movie. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then another thing that kind of came to mind... Um... Sort of, sort of from uh, when we were talking about what remains of Edith Finch how like women and horror a lot of times are remembered for certain things like their scream or their nude scene in the movie so i feel like even when it's the final girl even if she's not like nude it's almost like a sexualization or like a yeah. pornographication is that a word <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say there's no power in it, you know, even even if that is their their glory moment, whatever that may be, like there's no power in it. We're still just being a voyeur about it. Right. I think to piggyback off what both of you said, I think there's something, dare I say erotic? Is that too extreme to say? But I think that there's something erotic and voyeuristic about watching a woman, a powerless woman be afraid and be weak against something versus a man for a lot of people. I think you're absolutely onto something with that and definitely correct and how it's portrayed in horror movies. There's a big difference between like watching Halloween, for example, and like thinking Laurie Strode is a badass in that versus watching Halloween 2018 and thinking Laurie Strode is a badass in that. It's kind of like a dichotomy there of how females are portrayed in horror. And it's the same actor. Does that make sense? Yes. 
Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think at least as far as why the trope emerges, it's really heavily tied in with slasher films. And I think that a lot of the reason why is that you have some of these sort of proto-slasher films where people aren't entirely sure if it is or it isn't yet. You've got like Psycho in 1960, and then you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 74, and I think it's about... Uh, shoot, I forget the year exactly for the original Black Christmas, but you have these formulas where the main character ends up being this female character that ends up, not in the case of Psycho, mind you, but surviving the films. Spoiler for a 80-year-old movie. Is that right? 80-year-old movie? No, 60-year-old movie. Anyway. 60, yeah. Jeez. The point being that it sort of emerged organically because you have all of these films that are sitting there and saying, hey, that worked, we can do that too cheaply. And the slasher genre was huge during you know, the late 70s, early 80s, and they're all riffing off the same things, and they're all saying, well, there's a girl that survives to the end of this movie, and we're copying exactly what they're doing. We have the silent killer that's going around, maybe a mysterious identity, and they're hacking up teenagers, and there usually is a girl that survives, so let's keep doing that. And so I think at least why the trope emerges, I'm not sure how much thought was put into it. I think that a lot of it was just replicating what's working as quick as you can and getting it out there. But before you're stopping and thinking about it, you've codified it over 30 or 40 films, you know? Well, the damsel in distress story has worked for every genre, every time for centuries and centuries. Why would horror be any different? True. The difference, I think, is in feminist horror, the damsel has a damn good chance of saving herself. And a climbing axe. Yeah! Yes. I see what you did there. <laughs> so let's dive into that, th that thought process as well. Do you feel like this movie qualifies as a feminist movie now that you've all watched it recently? Obviously we put it in this week, but do you think that it, that it applies to this movie? I do, and I'm a person who didn't really ever consider any horror feminist before until I looked at it through a completely different lens, and this movie, for me, is absolutely feminist horror. I mean, the only man in the movie gets piped in the face, so... That was amazing, though! <laughs> it was so good! I was not Can ready. I tell you that I love when a movie, like, what was it, four minutes in, seven minutes in, and we've already got a copper pipe through a skull? I'm in. <laughs> I don't know. I'm struggling with this particular question because Brianna gave really good definitions earlier, two different definitions of what feminist horror could look like. And this obviously would be the kind of feminist horror that looks like a lot of strong female characters. And then the other side would be a story where the main issue or a heavy issue is something to do with femi like feminine qualities. And to me, that would, be, that would be a stronger case for feminist horror. I'm not sure about this one particularly because I don't think a lot would change if you replaced a few of the women with men in the story. So I don't know. Is it only feminist because it has a full cast of women? Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm on the fence. I think it's feminist because it portrays these women as individuals rather than, you know, folks who just travel to the bathroom in packs and powder their noses and do their lipstick. 
I think that right. the characters had a little bit more meat than a lot of the female characters that I've seen in other horror films. I'm not saying it's the best feminist horror film. Um, I'm working on that. But I think it's pretty darn good. One thing that would make me lean towards a yes, this is feminist horror, is that I really appreciate how how well they gave these characters such a heavy and unique interest in their you know, ex, what are, I don't even know what you would call this, cave diving? Spelunking. A lot of times women aren't portrayed with actual interests and hobbies in movies, and it's really refreshing to see that. I do like that aspect of it. I think that that part is really well done. The thing I wasn't sure about, and I guess this is not me proclaiming so much as, I guess, me asking because I'm not sure. Because one of the things that I thought about with this movie is that looking at just the Bechdel test as a guideline. And again, as I said before, whether you pass or don't pass, that doesn't necessarily mean it's feminist or not. But uh, one of the things is, yes, it is more than one female character with a name and they talk to each other and they talk to each other about things other than a man. Uh, The thing that I guess made me a little unsure is that your three main characters' plot lines really do revolve around a man who's maybe not there, but his presence is kind of felt as this elephant in the room between at least the main two characters with Beth kind of serving as the go-between on that. And I guess that made me feel a little bit like maybe it would be a stronger case if the problem between Juno and Sarah was something other than you slept with my husband kind of thing. I understand that a big thing for Sarah, because it's a late in the game revelation for her, is that Juno wasn't there for her when she needed her. But I guess I thought to myself, like, you know, who are they outside of taking that thing out of it? And that made me wonder a little bit, like, like you said, maybe it's still feminist, but maybe not the best example of it, because it just, it still kept that element in there, if that makes sense. I'm going to disagree only because the affair between Juno and Sarah's husband, what was his name, Paul? I mean, it barely matters, but it matters. <laughs> right. <laughs> but... Pipeface. Between her and Pipeface. <laughs> I think the revelation of that tryst um, had less to do with, I guess, the disintegration of the relationship between those two characters. Based on the other girls' comments about Juno, I got the impression that Juno was just always kind of bad news and everyone tolerated her because she thought she was an alpha and acted like it. So I'm going to say you're wrong because you don't know how girl circles work. Like her find to me, her finding out that she was sleeping with her husband was just like the final straw. Like, okay, bitch, gloves are off. Pickaxe to the knee. You're done. Which is a totally rational reaction to something like that in my humble but correct opinion. (laughs) and i'm not saying that it isn't i guess it's just something that i'm considering along with that so fair enough so with all that said like i feel like just the idea i mean steve and i kind of talked about this a little beforehand and we were just like well what would the movie look like if he took the husband out of it and i think it got me thinking about juno's character a little more uh specifically and just her her characterization, which I think is really good, and just why her her motivations and why she does things the way she does them, and why she ghosted after the accident and all that. There's a whole like kind of undercurrent, I guess, with her where like she lost a lover and can't mourn him. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of seen throughout the movie, and you get little moments where she kind of like 
looks away and has to take a deep breath. Something reminded her of him, but she can't voice that. She can't, I don't know. It seemed interesting to me to think about just her as a character. It's true, because she definitely loved Paul. At least that's the impression I walked away with. Oh, hell no. She's just trifling. Mm -mm. You think so? Maybe, but Absolutely. she wears his pendant for like over a year. Men never trade up when they cheat. That's a fact. <laughs> and plus, like, there was that moment, too, right before the car accident where they're in the car, Sarah and Paul. And I, it felt like if that scene had been allowed to continue, the accident didn't happen, that maybe it would be along the lines of, listen, this isn't working. And I could totally see, like, a non-horror future where, you know, six months later, Juno and Paul are living together somewhere and Sarah's, like, cursing her name, you know? No, Sarah moves to an Italian villa and lives out her life as a shoemaker. It's great. <laughs> well, fair enough. There's lots of wine and mopeds. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> I was going to just add that I don't necessarily feel like the intention of the of the movie was to be, like, feminist. I kind of just feel like the intention was to just portray women in a more real way and give them a good story. Just the way from my point of view, I guess. I don't know, bro. Sounds pretty feminist to me. <laughs> yeah, like actually actually giving women a fair shake in a movie has become the bar for feminism is pretty shows you the state of media. <laughs> well what did what did George R. R. Martin say when someone was like, Oh, how do you write women so well? He's like, Well, I assume they're people too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yep. Well, of course, if anyone has any more thoughts on this, feel free to share it. The next thing I was thinking as far as talking about this is, again, the idea of this is a baseline for something that we're all sure that this is horror. We're all in agreement that it is. What about the film makes you sure that it's horror? And of course, we will get into the nitty gritty on a bunch of these things. But I guess what jumped out to you, whether literally or not, that you're like, yes, this is 100% a horror film, I have no doubt. For me, it was mostly the jump scares and the gore are the first things that stand out to me. Um, but I think that the use of darkness in the film also had a lot to do with it. Yeah. So when when I mentioned that I think it is horror before, like I also said, like I think it's it skirts the line of thriller. I think it skirts skirts the line of thriller because um, this is kind of a story, and we've talked about this before when it's come up. Like it's about kind of just creatures doing their do, so to speak, and. I, I think because there's that, like there's, it's a little hazy, but the intent is very clear that it was supposed to be a horror movie because of how it's shot, because of the things you mentioned, Brianna. But uh, yeah, I think it comes down to intent for me. What made that intent clear to you? Uh, I think a lot, a lot of what, what Brianna said, the jump scares, the way the violence happened, like it's not. It was something jumped out and grabbed them, basically. And um, I'm trying to think of other examples, but like other like things doing their do. I guess maybe like Jurassic Park, for example, like you get the T-Rex that's attacking the cars, but it's sort of a slow burn, sort of like you see the T-Rex there, you know it's there, it's coming to hunt you. It's an animal that's going to get you. But where in this one, it's like, a creature jumps out at you from the dark and bites your neck, uh, you know, rips out your jugular. 
I don't know why that's funny. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Or is it? I don't know. I it's it's funny because my first reaction is to say that this is horror because of the monsters. But I think possibly because they were setting up such a dark and spooky tone and just this this tone of un- unknowing that if they never even included the monsters and just had them down in the cave completely stuck with spooky music I might still consider it like a survivalist horror if that is such a thing. Because that is terrifying. Yeah, I think it is. I I think it's horror because of the music and the lighting and the suspenseful moments in it. I think it could I think you could almost make it horror even if there wasn't any monsters in it just because of the tone and the danger and fear involved in like going through these kind of caves and things like that. I know it would probably just be categorized as a survival story, but for me, those kind of things are even pretty scary. I don't know. Now that I'm hearing you both say this about not having the crawlers as an element, I I think if the crawlers weren't in this, I would not classify it as horror at all. Then it would just be survival. Really? And that's, yeah, that's really different for me. Because I th- what I'm finding, the more that we talk about horror movies, the more I think that for me there has to be some sort of, like a supernatural element, kind of. There has to be something mystical, magical, spooky, ooky, or it just, it doesn't fit the bill fully for me. Then it's just horror flavored. Then it's just suspense. I don't know. It's a good point. Yeah. Suspense and thriller like can overlap with horror, but that doesn't mean that they are horror for me anyway. Then you have something like Friday the 13th, like at least the first one. There's no supernatural elements in it, you know. But I think that those types of movies were made at a time when mental illness was not fully understood. And, you know folks who were mentally ill back in the middle ages got branded as being possessed by demons do you know what i'm saying like it's it's obvious that with like the friday the 13th movies and all that stuff like there's i don't know there's still like this dark evil thing like this inexplicable evil that happens to someone or comes from someone and no one knows why like psychosis itself is like supernatural almost yeah Mm -hmm. Or inexplicable somehow, like there's like uh, Jason Voorhees or not Jason Voorhees, um, Michael Myers are like, oh, he's just he's a bad seed or, you know, Damien from the Omen kind of deal. Like there's this, I don't know, element of evil. Well, I think the other thing that you deal with in this movie, though, that I guess I would argue contradicts that idea of there has to be something supernatural is that at the end of the day, the crawlers are just a quirk of evolution. Now, if you decided to do something slightly different with this creature and you looked around and you said, here's an animal that's good at climbing out there. Let's say it evolved a little bit different down here and it ate people, but it's not at all humanoid, but it's the same evolutionary process. They were in a place so long that they evolved to it. Would that make this more or less horror for you? Because I guess from what you're saying, it sounds like it would be less horror. But I think that in this movie, at least, you're not really getting a supernatural element with the creatures. Just as I said, it's it's evolution, not, you know, something spooky. But 
I think that the fact that because to me the implication was the crawlers are descended from humans. What I got was like they were somehow native to this area where the cave was and their society sort of broke off and became those who lived underground kind of like the morlocks from the time machine so the fact that it's it's a human being evolving into the evil thing is enough to push that over the edge for me but i want to hear what everyone else says well that's what i'm saying at the end of the day is it an evil thing because it's there's that argument we've made in some of the other things like it's it is it something that was human and evolved, but at the end of the day, it's just eating slash protecting its territory. You know, if it's, if it's not hungry, if you're not in its area, maybe it leaves you alone. So is there, is there evil there or is it just survival? It plays on the fear of sociological de-evolution or disintegration. So we've taken a thing that's, that's higher level of human being and we've made it live underground and eat Basically, it's biological cousins because it shows that it's eaten human beings before. So it's the fact that they're an aberration of some kind that changes it for me. So, okay, if you took like a movie about cannibals, I guess, that are more like direct humans, like does that not qualify as horror then? That absolutely does. You need to go read The Off Season by Jack Ketchum. Oh, I'm not saying that it, I guess just... I guess I'm not saying that it doesn't, but just like, I guess with that idea, it, the difference isn't so much that they're not fully human. It's that they're eating people. Yes, it's the it's the perceived soci- sociological aberration of consuming human flesh. It's the social taboo. I think Steve mentioned that in a previous um, episode about how there has to be some sort of taboo that's broken. So yeah, for me, cannibalism would absolutely fit that bill. Yeah, and it's it's also kind of like drawing a fine line between, okay, well, zombies also are just acting on instinct kind of a thing, but they are the undead in some cases, but right. they are sometimes not the undead. Sometimes they're just rage-infected human beings that are suffering from a disease. So is that then not horror? So yeah, I, I definitely think all of it is horror. But yeah, and then there's also like kind of a moment where the female uh, creature in the cave, the crawler, like notices that her male counterpart is dead and gets like mad about that. You can see, so there's like some humanity to them also. So I don't know, there's a lot of arguments to be said, but at the end of the day, I still think it's all horror. I had seen one thing about that that I... I think it was from the director. Sorry, I don't have a direct quote. It was a random thing that I'd seen that I guess that was supposed to be like, it was like a mother and an adolescent crawler um, that Sarah had killed. It was a mother child. Oh, no wonder she chased her into that blood jacuzzi. Right. So (laughs) like uh, the director, uh, whatever his name Neil Marshall. Yes, thank you. Uh, Neil Marshall was saying, like, originally he was going to have all the crawlers as male, but then he was like, no, this is a colony. There needs to be, like, family units here. And that's when he decided to add add in that scene that was supposed to be, yeah, a mother with a like, adolescent one. And then you have the, like, I don't know if the male one's supposed to be, like, her mate who comes along a little bit later and steps on Sarah's head. Oh, that was so creepy. 
So do you feel that the way that Neil Marshall chose to represent these, so without knowing that there's some at least humanization to them, is he trying to represent the crawlers as monsters or animals? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I was kind of saying earlier is that if there is, there's love, obviously, or a sense of caring between individuals in the group. So I definitely think that they're being portrayed more as animals than monsters. Initially, you get that they're monsters, but then sort of at the end, you're, or really when that scene comes up with the female one, you get that these are just kind of animals surviving and they had these things wander into their lair and they're just killing them. It almost has like an I am legend sort of vibe to it, right? Because it sort of, the tables turn and it's like, okay, well, these these things are killing us. Like, <laughs> this is getting crazy. Uh, so yeah, I think it's more of an animal sort of thing. Yeah, it's something I wondered about just because like, I mean, these are supposed to be humans that just took an evolutionary, a different evolutionary track. So like, I don't know, are they supposed to be like on the same intellectual level as humans? They don't really act like it very much. But yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I would have probably gone with the idea that they were supposed to be creatures or portrayed as creatures without that insight about like, okay, well, I need to add in family units and have like the mother be concerned about the child getting killed. And I don't know, that's a whole thing too, because then there's the correlation between, you know, Sarah losing her child too. But yeah. Anyways, I don't know if I got anywhere with that whole comment, but that's what came to mind. Well, and then to add, like, the only crawler that we see, or the maybe the crawler that we see that displays the highest level of intelligence is the female one. So maybe that is lending something also to the idea of it being feminist horror. Could be matriarchal society and all the males are just foot soldiers. That shit happens underground, I'm just saying. Yeah. You have a lot of experience with underground <laughs> female-led societies. <laughs> Don't blow my cover. I definitely think, at least for for my money, I know I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate and asking some of these questions because I want the discussion, but I don't think that you have to portray whatever your antagonist creature is as a monster for it to qualify as horror. I think it can just be an animal, something that people have to evade. Certainly the way that the crawlers are presented, depending on the scene, lends itself a little more or less to horror, like using them for jump scares and spots like that. And uh, having some of them just be ruthless and mindless. And then of course you do have those moments of humanizing, but I don't think that the creatures have to be portrayed as monsters to make it horror. I think they can be just portrayed as animals just trying to survive. And I do think that this movie does that. I don't think that it spends a lot of time on, you know, like dealing with what's going on in the colony, what it's organized, having them raising their kids and things like that that would show them as more vulnerable or innocent. But I do think that at least goes into the idea of, yeah, they're just doing what creatures do. And it's not, there's no malice. There's just maybe even fear, honestly, behind what they're doing of just, hey, there's things that shouldn't be here and there's a lot of them. Hey, you are super empathetic to the throat-ripping cryptids here, sir. Um, I'm just saying, like, there's good guys and bad guys. Devil's advocate. Ruth. It's just trying to protect itself, you know? 
But it was female bonding. That's why they go down and destroy the environment and, you know, interrupt their peaceful little bloodbaths. Rude. God, well, that's the suck. thing, right? Like, uh, yeah, there's there's conflict between these groups, but ultimately neither of them are necessarily doing anything wrong. There's there's little things here and there. If obviously they could have communicated, they would have been fine. They would have just been like, hey, we're going to peace out and we'll throw some ham down here for you. Good. And then the crawlers have been like, yeah, sure. Add a little extra for they my kids. They could have had wonderful holiday. Di- they could have had Friendsgiving together and it would have been lovely. But no, we have to come in with flares. I mean, the humans had infighting, so I think they do have that up. They have that one up on us. I think they're the better ones. <laughs> True. I love how everybody just went team crawler real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get t-shirts that said save the crawlers? Yes. <laughs> okay, well, one of the things I also wanted to take a look at, too, and of course, if you have more thoughts on the crawlers, as always, feel free to come back to it. I, this obviously is a tense movie. We've hit on that a bit, too, talking about the darkness of it and the claustrophobia of it. Um, what does everyone feel was the most tense part? And uh, do you feel like the movie did a good job of keeping that tension going throughout the film? I kind of lost my mind uh, for what I consider to be the very first super tense moment, uh, which was the rock collapse. Like that made me want to peel my skin off when she got stuck and they're like, you need to move now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had to go back and watch that twice. It's really good. It's super effective. And there's not even any blood or supernatural anything. That's just a terrifying scene for me. Yeah. And like the tension never drops, at least for me, like the tension never drops from that moment moment on. It's just like full gas. (laughs) Because they're underground and they don't know if they can get out. Yeah, I would say the tension stays up. I agree, too. I think the tensest part for me is definitely that most claustrophobic scene where they're going through and it starts to fall. Um, The other thing, I guess I'll just throw this out here as trivia, not proof of anything one way or the other. But I was curious how they ended up filming it, filming all of this. And I kind of suspected the soundstage, but after watching some making of videos, yeah, it's all on the soundstage. So that would have been like basically a canal that they built and uh, fit all the cameras in. And they easily could have just lifted what was most likely a styrofoam rock off them at the end. So I think it was kind of interesting seeing just some of what into the background of it. But yeah, that kind of claustrophobic moment is more tense to me than fighting the actual creatures later. I was also really impressed that it was all like a a soundstage or a set. I guess this was filmed uh, at a studio close to London, but they they would literally rearrange this set almost every single day. And, and the actors didn't know how they were going to do it necessarily. So they did have to crawl through those tunnels and like puddles and stuff completely almost blind. Like they just said, okay, you're going to crawl down this hole until we say stop. And that's what they did. Huh. Yeah. I definitely think that the use of lighting and how you can just kind of barely see what's going on in most scenes really, really adds to the horror effect of all of it. I kind of wish there was like a cut where everything was just made a lot brighter. (laughs) (laughs) In uh, Steve and I's conversation, he had mentioned that like one of the inspirations was Alien. And I can definitely see that. But just the vent scenes in Alien where like all you see is the character in this little spot of darkness that's all over the place in this movie, I feel like. 
And so that kind of leads me to something else I was thinking about in terms of this. So we're looking at this as basically an example of baseline horror. Yeah, this is horror. And so we're looking at the tension side of it. How does the tension in this film differ from non-horror tension? I was thinking of movies that we talked about that I'm, I know have tense scenes, like Pan's Labyrinth and Terminator, that we all kind of lean towards those weren't, for the, not all of us, but... You know, I think the general consensus was that they're either not horror or they're just far enough away that we couldn't 100% call it that. So how does horror tension differ from non-horror tension in movies, thinking about some of those examples? I think I'm kind of making this up as I go, so I'm sure there's holes in it. But like just thinking about those examples that you said, like Terminator and Pan's Labyrinth. I think for me, there's a little bit of a difference. Like there's still fear of death in both those movies and there's fear of death in a movie like this, but there's, and this kind of comes back to like the cannibal angle, I think is like there's, and the like supernatural kind of thing. Like there's something, it's kind of a little bit more than the fear of death. Like there's sort of like a fear of like being defiled kind of thing. And I don't know, maybe there's something there. I was going to, the other tense moment in the movie for me was when Sarah's stuck in the like, in the like feeding ground area with the camera and like watching the things like tear Holly apart. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, she died, but it's worse than that <laughs> somehow. Yeah, it's about having your body being reduced to something that someone else or something else is just going to consume like i don't know that that creeps me out yeah maybe that's a little bit of the difference for me between horror tension and non-horror tension i'm going to agree 100 percent with you because i think you just verbalized what i feel and didn't know what it was i think the defilement is where it's at (laughs) hashtag defilement (laughs) that's a t-shirt (laughs) wait maybe not it's a little dark that's okay we watch dark things is it defiled sweatpants at (laughs) victoria's secret where it says hashtag defilement on the booty oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) only if it's sparkly i really feel like any word or phrase across a booty just makes it a lot classier (laughs) oh for sure I do think that it, what you were talking to was about the defilement, the because I think that one of the things I was considering, at least in terms of this movie, is it's it's we'll say it's light body horror just because of both sides of it is of course the idea of someone devouring you. Um, so there's that side of it, but then I think also the thing that Brianna hit on because I agree with the idea of seeing a sort of uh, distorted version of humanity also kind of adds to that. And I agree that at least part of what I feel like probably goes into making horror is some sort of taboo element, some sort of uh, goes against nature somehow. And I think that you do have that element here, both with the crawlers and what the crawlers end up doing to our human protagonists. So I I agree that I think that there's are those elements there. And I think the other thing, at least as far as the horror tension versus tension is I think that... Uh, not that it has to necessarily be this way, because we've talked about horror comedy, but the movie doesn't, as I think somebody else said already, let off the gas once things get going. So it doesn't really make 
any effort to relieve the tension. You have quiet moments, but there's never a spot where you feel that anybody is entirely safe. And so you as an audience member, you're always feeling claustrophobic. You're always struggling to see what's there. So that connects you in with it a little bit further. And uh, you do feel as though anything could happen. And so I, I think, yeah, there's those elements of it too, at least for me, that kind of elevated from, say, tension of another film to a horror-style tension. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to go to another angle of it too, and we've touched on it a little bit here and there, and I wanted to, I guess, address this side of it too, is uh, going again with sort of like the the taboo social trespass of it all sort of thing, talking about the gore aspect, the gore aspect of this uh, gore. I said gore. Anyway, that's fine. It's a real word now. Uh, going with the gore aspect of this movie, there's always a close relationship between horror and gore. And I wanted to get each of your take on that, I guess. Why do you think that there is that relationship? Have we already touched on it? I guess, what's your input on that? Well, I think gore in and of itself is a taboo. That's really the long and short of it. Yep, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of what, what, which gore sort of affected me the most. And um, I think it was the gore that was not actually caused by the monsters. Because, like, the ones that mm -hmm. kind of were the worst for me was, you know, when she puts that at the pick through the girl's throat and then also the broken leg. I think those are kind of the worst gore for me. Like, there's scenes that the monsters do where they're, like, ripping throats out and stuff like that or clawing at, like, a dead person. Those don't quite feel as bad for some reason. Oh, my God. But did you miss the blood pool? Come on. Well, I mean, the blood pool's uh, like not something that's inflicted on anybody, but yeah, the blood pool's obviously like it's still got the ick factor. Pretty metal. Yeah. It's yeah, right. Come on. Yeah, so like the blood pool is the lighting for that scene. I think makes it look a lot better than what it probably would be in real life if you were in that situation and things are just lit by a torch. I feel like she maybe wouldn't have even been sure in that situation if she was in blood or if it was mud or what it was. So obviously we can see it, but I don't know how it's necessarily affecting her. I can tell you for a fact, if that was a real pool of blood, the smell alone would be Ugh. overwhelming. Yeah, it would be pretty bad. Yeah. And for some reason, that scene reminded me of something from Predator like when she rises up out of the, the pool itself. I don't know why. But my brain totally made that connection. Shoot, yeah. I can't think of a You can see it, right? Sure. Like, there's something that triggers the connection. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. I do agree with what you said about um, the violence inflicted on, like, human-to-human -human violence was way more stark and, like, startling and horrific. Um, which I also think speaks a lot to this particular genre, is that I think that a lot of feminist horror oftentimes focuses on what human beings do to each other in addition to traditional horror tropes. So you can obviously have gore movies that aren't horror. And uh, what would you say is the main difference between horror gore and say action gore? Because you do have, we talked about violence happening to actual people versus happening to the crawlers. And there's certainly action movies where there is violence that happens to people and even gory violence that happens to people. So I guess 
are there things that you feel like make the difference on that? Is it is it the focus? What kind of crosses over the line? I think action gore a lot of the time is quicker. Um, it can still be as brutal and gory. Like I can think of several different scenes that made me go ew from definite not horror films. Um, and I think that with horror, it's really more drawn out. The focus is more on the blood, on the splatter, on the pain, on the torture. Like it's more drawn out in a horror in a horror sense. I also think there's a particular impact of person-on-person violence when you're in a horror film so like there's a horde of creepy crawly blind vampire human things in a cave but you get killed because you broke your leg or you get killed because an accident happened and your friend put a pick through your throat (laughs) like there's (laughs) there's like i feel like there's just a little bit yeah you know whatever um i feel like there's more poignancy like oh man you you know you're you're surviving this like horrifying over-the-top monster situation and then you die in a human-on-human confrontation it's like there's like a certain feeling or maybe that's part of like the taboo kind of thing of it or like human nature i don't know how to explain myself but yeah that kind of violence feels different i think it's because it's like when the monsters are on screen or you're expecting them to be on screen any minute you can brace yourself for that kind of gore but a lot you're not expecting no one expects a rod through the spanish inquisition (laughs) yeah (laughs) but a rod through the head yeah. yeah 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 Same thing. I don't know. It's just the more real gore is more effective to me. Real as in caused by human error. More effective to you in like, uh, like it's, well, I guess, what, shocking, what do you mean by I guess. shocking? Shocking. Okay. But also, I think like the human on human violence is perceived differently in a horror movie than human on human violence is perceived in like a war movie, which I think is kind of something that we've touched on a lot of times, like with stuff like Pan's Labyrinth, where, yeah, it's kind of like what Mitz said is that when the monsters are on screen, you're expecting people to get hurt, but then they like misdirect you with, with that human on human violence or uh, violence caused by the environment. So it almost adds like a different horror element than if somebody just broke their leg in like a regular survival kind of movie. And I agree too with something else that Brianna had said earlier is the idea that uh, when you're making a horror movie and you're dealing with gore and violence that you're tendering, tending to linger on those things more, to focus on those things more. Because I think some of the ways that they did that in this movie too is you have things where you've got Sarah evil dead style eye gouging a crawler, which I mean, as far as useless attacks to work on a crawler, I suppose that would be one of the more useless, <laughs> useless ones. Oh no, I can't see. Oh wait. I don't know. She went pretty deep. I'm pretty sure she hit some sort of brain matter. That was pretty gross. Ugh. Like she was knuckles deep in his eye sockets. That was brutal. Yeah. 
And and right, like, because you you could have had her kill the crawler any other number of ways, and there's certainly other ways that that's happened. Like one of the most bloodless ways, right, is uh, I think you get Juno throw like a pickaxe and snap a neck, but mm-hmm. then. Uh, you could have had Sarah do something like that. But so whenever there is gore, not always, but a lot of times when there is gore in this movie, they choose to do the more over the top style with things and they choose to show it, focus more on it, more on it. And so I think that's at least one of the ways that the gore, the way it's presented in this movie feels like a horror movie, as opposed to say just an action movie. Also, can I just say that that scene where both Juno and Sarah are like going duo of insanity all over the crawlers in that cave, that was awesome. Like that was almost a perfect action sequence in addition to the horror gore. One of my favorite scenes. I do like that sequence too. That's a good one. That's another sequence where I kind of feel there's a little bit of an element of feeling some kind of sympathy or connection for the monsters like there's also the feeling of okay well these women are empowered and they're kicking these monsters butts now but then it kind of turns a tide where they're like massacring them between the two of them and doing like these like crate like stuffing stuffing her fingers in the eye sockets kind of a thing and you're like whoa like this is kind of flipping a little bit for me in that sequence too i don't know if anybody else felt that well we've already established that we're all team crawlers so there's that Save the crawlers. Save the crawlers. But yeah, it is. I, I see what you're saying, Matt, on that. Because it's like, at that point, I mean, they never establish how big the colony is. But I guess I had assumed that it's probably not huge. And these women come down and probably killed a fairly large amount of their colony. Which, is, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of devastating for them. Are we starting a GoFundMe for crawlers? I feel like we should do this. <laughs> Guys, we got to do something about these crawlers. These crawlers. Um. <laughs> A little community joke for those that have watched that show. Yes. I was, I was going to say, I had a question for everybody. So um, whether we think it's think this particular element's feminist or not, we all agree that Juno's affair with Sarah's husband had an impact on Juno getting the pickaxe to the knee at the end. Is that correct? Yeah, I agree that that's at least part of it, yeah. So prior to um, the aforementioned scene that's really kick-ass where they team up on the crawlers, so Sarah asks Juno about Beth, and Juno lies. And we can see that Sarah knows that she's lying. So I want to know who thinks that who thinks that she honestly wanted to work with Juno to survive and like have them both get out alive when they were in that fight. And how many people think that she literally just utilized Juno because she knew that Juno was capable and would help her win to only like betray her at the end and like deliver the swift pickaxe of justice. Because I think it's the latter, but I want to know what other people think. I think it's the latter also. Yeah, she was using Juno all the way. I think you can see the the switch flip in Sarah's eyes. And I think it is about the affair, but it's almost more about the lie about Beth. Yeah, it's more I think it's more about Beth more than anything. Like I said, I feel like the affair was incidental in in terms of Sarah's decision to totally off Juno. Yeah, and I think like yeah, Sarah's decision was made right then and there as soon as Juno lied about that. 
and Sarah does like drop the pendant and kind of let Juno know it, it is about the affair, but it's almost more like being like, I know you're a lying bitch. So it's and, like, bitch, I see you. Yeah, exactly. I think that I would agree yeah, that she definitely made the decision to kill Juno probably before she even ran. It. Well, I don't know, maybe in the moment where she asked, but the other aspect of um, this movie that we haven't really touched on yet is the whole idea of obviously the descent. There's the literal interpretation of they're going into a dark cave, but then there's the figurative interpretation of it, which is the idea of Sarah's descent into madness, her completely losing herself as this movie goes on. And so, you know, one of those big breaking points is having to kill her friend with a rock and, finding out that the only other person who's still potentially alive down here, she can't trust and hasn't been able to trust for a long time. And uh, yeah, so it's just like she's she's kind of snapped at that point. So yeah, I think she asked that question is, hey, what happened to Beth? Sees that she lies and is like, all right, well, I'll use you until I don't need to. So it was pure strategy, huh? I think as much as someone who has become unmoored with reality can be yeah i think i think so i wanted to see too because i am curious sorry feel if you have more comments on that subject i will let you make them because i had a question that would take us in a different direction oh no i had a separate question that was going to go in a direction too so you first because i just did one Oh, okay. Well, I was going to see, because there are two different endings to this movie. There's an English ending and an American ending. Um, the American ending ends with Sarah gets out of the cave. She gets in the vehicle. She drives off. Then she looks to her side and she gets the jump scare of Juno's ghost, or at least the interpretation of Juno's ghost in her head. And so that's where the American movie ends. The English version continues with the jump scare happening and then she wakes back up in the cave exactly where she had fallen down. And then she, at that point, gets up, looks up, and then they continue the motif that she's seeing her daughter and the birthday cake. And so she's sitting there looking, you know, uh, certainly snapped, but also somewhat lovingly at her deceased daughter that she thinks is actually there with her in the cave. And then, of course, you pan back out and you see that, you know, it's just the fire from her torch that's the light there in front of her and that's uh obviously her daughter's not there and that she's alone in the cave and that she's completely disconnected from reality at that point and then that's where it fades to black and the movie's over so my question was whether or not people had seen the american or the english ending and if how that affected their view of the movie's status as horror or not I'm pretty sure that I've only ever seen the American ending. Um, I've read about the alternate ending, of course. And I think that the American ending did impact, it cemented it as horror for me, because what do I always say? You can't have a happy ending. They can't just escape. There has to be a final jump scare. And this fulfilled that completely. I think the two endings, I think they're both horror endings for me, at least. I don't know that it totally affects my opinion one way or the other i don't know it's still kind of both of them leave sarah in a somewhat delusional state more so the uk version for sure because she's still trapped in the cave which is a darker ending i would say 
not muddying the waters with the second movie because they're, I mean, just knowing there's a second movie, I guess you know that, well, maybe you don't know that she's still around, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I'm, I'm, I'm trailing off now. I don't know where I'm going with that, but I guess just <laughs> to say that I, I think they're both horror endings for me. Uh, I definitely think they're both horror endings. Um, not sure which one I would prefer, though. Because the English ending's definitely scarier. I don't know. Do I want a happy ending? I don't know. If it has a happy ending, it can't be horror. Unless it's children's horror. But she's still experienced a lot of horror. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Like, even in the American version, I'm not sure she's in a good state. <laughs> like, no, she not made at it all. out, but right. Yeah, she's like far worse than Terminator. There was no cute flowered headband. R- right, right. Or aviator sunglasses. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> or an overpriced photo of yourself. <laughs> right. If there are accessories, I'm not really sure it's the apocalypse. I'm just saying. <laughs> I do think either way you end up in this state where at least the implication of the movie that is trying to get at is uh, maybe she's not stuck in the cave at the end of the American version, but the figurative descent, the descent into madness that she's still very much locked into there. And of course, if you've seen the sequel that, you know, I don't know, gives more of a fine point on exactly what happens next and where she's at state of mind wise. But at least as far as this movie, if this is all that existed and all you ever saw, I think you would have to look at it like, yeah, she's out of the cave, but, you know, what's the rest of her life like? Because she she was already pretty broken from what she'd previously experienced. And now to have this, too, like, I don't know if she'll ever be okay again. Yeah. She left the cave, but did the cave leave her? Precisely. Dun-dun-dun. You can take the girl out of the cave, but not the cave out of the girl. Yeah, truth. That's not the analogy that I was going for. Shut up! (laughs) Sorry. Maybe the real horror was the friends we pickaxed along the way. (laughs) Yeah, the frenemies are the real horror story here. (laughs) Look at me. Look at me. How do you make a lemon orgasm? (laughs) You look at citrus. Come on, that was brilliant. That was funny. In a life or death situation, I would choose to laugh. Absolutely. And then, Brianna, you had a question, too? Oh, I lied. It wasn't a question. It was a factoid. So one of the things that I'm real big on is movie posters. I super I, – I love promo images of productions and stuff. I just think it's cool. And uh, the cover that I've always seen for this uh, was really cool. It's um, a like a, a living figure of several female bodies um, arranged together in such a way that it, it's backlit and it creates a skull. And – I'm an art nerd, shock surprise. So I did a little research on that particular thing. And apparently this is based on a photograph, I believe. Painting, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it's called, in. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly as well, Enveloptus Moors um, by Philippe Halsman. And I guess roughly translated, it's something like the voluptuous death or something. And it's this photograph of Salvador Dali Next to an actual, I guess they call it a tab- tableau vivant, a living tableau, um, which are, again, like these female figures arranged into a skull formation next to him. It's really cool. Go check it out. So there's your fun little artsy factoid for this. Oh, that's spooky. 
I'd forgotten that. I was glad you brought it up. I'll have to share it on the Instagram here when this episode comes out. Show show the two side by side. I think they did a, a very good homage to it uh, with this particular poster, cover art, whatever. Yeah, that's cool. Any other thoughts? Anything else that anybody wanted to discuss in terms of this film? All right. Well, set you up here for next week. So next week is week three of the first annual is it horror movie marathon and that's going to be matt's week of the living dead since that's what he selected so it's going to be zombie films and then we're going to close out that following week by talking about 2006's fido it's a zombie movie with a bit of a twist on it if you haven't seen it it's a really fun one. Oh my god i haven't seen that in so long i'm so glad you picked this it's gonna be good so uh, join us back here next week, and uh, thanks for joining us this time around. Um, I have been Steve. And I've been Brianna. And I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I'm Mitz. Bye. 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 <laughs> thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes, or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at IsItHorrorPod, or you can email us at IsItHorrorPodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it horror? Don't go hiking. Don't go hiking. Don't go spelunking. Don't go. Don't go. Just don't go. Stay inside. Inside Inside is safe. (laughs) That's the moral of this story. Just don't go outside. (laughs) Terrible freaking idea. God, what's wrong with people? I have watched enough Mr. Ballin videos to never leave my house, so. But you could die in your house, too, so. (laughs) I know, but, like, I don't know. I'd be more comfortable here. Do you know? I'd rather bleed out on my carpet than a pile of bones underground. And then, you know, your cats will be fed because they'll just eat you. They'll eat exactly. my face because they love me. Yeah. Circle of life. I'm fine with I it. I try to eat it anyway, so. Truth.